0: Stuck inside my mind is what a teen cuss The light of me the tunnel isn't inside Episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello, and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, licensed professional counselor supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Amanda Wallingsford, licensed marriage and family therapist supervisor, who will be talking about her practice in an area of interest. Understanding Our Survival
1: Strategies.
0: Welcome to the show, Amanda.
1: Thank you so much. I'm I'm very excited to be here. I'm happy to have you.
0: Um,
1: So tell us, what are your credentials and experience? I am, as you said, licensed marriage and family therapist and board approved supervisor. I have been in the mental health field for going over 20 years now. Um, I went to undergrad and got a degree in human and organizational development with an emphasis in health and human services, and then a major in child and adolescent development. So in college, I started my internship at a runaway shelter and directly out of college, I went into the community mental health. And uh, one of the the supervisors at that in undergrad said go get experience before you decide on your licensure and yeah. that was yeah. amazing amazing advice and so then i took about five or six years off and decided that mft was the route for me
0: awesome awesome um how long did you do community mental health for
1: um i did that for 17 years wow. i think
0: that's a about, long that's and, a long time
1: to yeah, be in community yeah. mental health. <laughs> Yeah, I did that. Um, and then because I had moved to Texas, did two more years here. Um, and then I took a break and went to the state and worked for a community health a mental health program for the Yes Waiver. I don't know if you're aware oh, of yeah, that. Yes oh, Waiver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was on the the state team for that. And then I was like, I'm ready to do private practice. I'm ready to mm-hmm. kind of get out of that and be able to dive deeper into therapy. Um, cause I was a program manager for several years in community mental okay. health. I love leadership, but I, I was like, let me follow, follow my calling and do the private practice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it's so important to have experience in community mental health as a practitioner, um, in order to like go into private practice. I think community mental health prepares us for anybody who walks through the door.
1: Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the things that really helped prepare me was all of the the contracts I work for. um, I was in San Diego and all of the contracts were juvenile justice prevention or intervention related, but they all had a component requiring family participation. And so I did thousands of home visits, you know, and and I I, I don't know what I would do without that experience because it really helped me. Understand all the dynamics that are at play. You know, there's one thing to have a client come in, especially a youth, they come into your office. If they're by themselves, you only get one slice right. of the pie to understand it. But when you see their family system in play, it just it, it's invaluable to the growth we can help them make.
0: I totally agree. Totally agree. So, uh, Amanda, what is the name of your practice?
1: My practice is positive changes counseling services. And okay. I'm doing mostly telehealth. And then I just relocated to Round Rock. I was in Pflugerville in Westlake. And then with COVID and office offices changing, um, it just opened doors in the last couple of weeks to do a few in-person sessions in Round Rock. That's exciting. Yeah. It's nice to be back in an office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, just having the separation from the mess at home or the dogs barking, it's been really nice to kind of get back into that that feeling of a therapy room.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not?
1: Okay, so I accept Blue Cross all plans, however, I've put in my resignation for the HMO plan. Okay. Um, and so that will end, I think, September. Um, and that's really uh, because of it's it's not very supportive to to providing quality treatment. Um, and then I have Medicaid. So I, I have Medicaid through Superior and Blue Cross. Um, and I'm in process of Dell Children's. Um, I'm waiting, waiting to hear back. Um, and then I have Ambetter. Oh, and then I have Sauna. Sauna is not a very well-known one, um, but it's starting to, to kind of build in Austin. But I do take Sauna. Um Ooh. And and then, of course, um, private pay if it's appropriate, especially for doing EMDR um, intensives. But the Medicaid, you know, I may think about going more towards letting go of insurance companies, but I will always keep Medicaid to be able to serve that, that population that can otherwise not access resources.
0: Right, right. I, I appreciate that. And for the Blue Cross Blue Shield HMO plans, it's so hard to find any therapist anywhere on that plan. Yeah. And it's just because the, the way they administrate <laughs> the plan will yeah. stay isn't adequate.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I, I really struggled with that because I wanted to be able to stay on so people had access to it. And then after three years of being on it and the amount of work that goes into it, and um, mm-hmm. I would rather provide more flexibility to sliding scale Um, then continue to be with an insurance that does not support mental health. Right. I know a lot of therapists are struggling with these decisions, but that's kind of where I've arrived at.
0: Yeah, I'm just, I'm in the process now. I'll be off of all insurance uh, as of 7-15. Okay. It was a hard, very difficult decision to make, um, but ultimately it was the best one for me and my practice. Um, do you do all your own billing or do you have somebody do it for you? I actually hired
1: a virtual assistant maybe in January. Um, and it's been amazing. She's she's a college student, has had exposure to medical billing and stuff. And it's been great. So I'm not going through a company, um, but she's just kind of these it takes one thing off of my plate. Of course, I have to handle if there's kind of some issues that come up. But it's been really nice to have that extra support. And she's got a great attitude and and helpful. Um, but I started realizing, I mean, it's just, it's so much work to do the admin and private practice.
0: Well, I mean, that's, that, yeah, I mean, that's why I'm getting off of insurance partially is um, I don't want a substantial part of, part of my income to go to paying somebody. You know, a lot of these bigger companies that do billing for you take, like, certain percentages of whatever mm-hmm. it is you get paid. And it's just a, a little scary, you know, giving away a percentage of your income. Um, yeah. So I, I was doing it all myself, and I've been working 60-plus-hour weeks for the last at least three years. Oh, yeah. um, Well, I mean, technically I've been working 60 hour plus weeks since 2012, but, um, (laughs) but since I've been in private practice, I've been doing that for the last three years. And I just realized it doesn't have to be that way, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I wonder if coming from community mental health, we're used to having like just so much on our plate and then get to private practice and we think, oh, okay, it's going to get easier, but there's a lot that goes into running a business. Absolutely. And, yeah. Reaching a point where it doesn't have to be that hard. I lucked out with this virtual assistant because I'm not paying big overhead or anything. Um, and it was just, it, it was almost like the stars aligned because I was thinking of it. And then this person said, hey, I'm looking for a part-time job and I've worked in healthcare. Um, so I'm not giving away too much. It's enough. It's, it's,
0: it's
1: um, worth it. it. It is totally worth it just to know it's being taken care of. And when I go to sleep at night, I'm not worrying about the five denials I got back that I have to go investigate and sit on a phone call for an hour and not get a live person. Like, <laughs> at least an hour. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. So you said you, um, do you have a sliding scale or reduced fee that you offer?
1: Yeah. So it's actually a reduced fee. My um, my hourly fee is 130. Um, I reduce it to a hundred. Um, and then that's where, you know, as I'm kind of business planning in the next year, I really want to be able to create a sliding scale structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've, I've got to put some components in place.
0: That's cool. Um, do you have weekend or evening appointments available?
1: Um, I don't have weekend. Um, I have set very good boundaries around not working on the weekends. Um, uh, but my evening slots have been full forever. Um yeah. So it's very rare when something comes up and it's more like a cancellation. But as far as ongoing, I mean, I offer evening, but they're already taken.
0: Got it. Okay. Um, is being a therapist your first career? If not, what
1: was? So the case manager was the first career. I mean, well, I mean, it's the same it's the same career, but that was the first major role. And then going into supervision of mental health programs. Um, but yeah, it's, this has been... This has been my calling ever since I started working.
0: Awesome. What drew you to being a therapist? Like how and when did you know?
1: Um, so yeah, this is going to open the doors to kind of get into to some deeper stuff. I knew around the age of 12. Um, I was so excited. I, you know, I volunteered in the counseling office, but at that age, I started noticing now, now having words for, it, I started noticing trauma and systems and especially oppressive systems and how I started seeing these patterns. And so I became very curious about it. So most of that came from my family. I um, had uh, a bi- biological dad that I could see was very, was a, um, his family is Hispanic. So I'm half Hispanic and half white. And I could see this contrast between his family and his challenges and, and la- lack of access to resources and the mental health that came from that versus being in the home with my mom and adoptive parents. Um, although I also recognize uh, some generational trauma and some mm-hmm. family dynamics. Um, that I just, I was so curious, why do people become the way they do? Um I also lived in a neighborhood, not in a neighborhood, I went to a school that had different socioeconomic things and I started seeing these patterns of people getting in trouble. Um, Mm -hmm. What were those patterns? You know, demographics and everything and the the people that were, um, Mm -hmm. I guess, checking all the societal boxes of doing well. Um, And then I guess more specifically, my dad, I knew he was in a lot of pain. Um, I didn't know it was depression at the time. Um, but I wanted to be able to help people not experience that pain. Mm-hmm. So it it was just my calling, and I've I've followed it ever since.
0: That's awesome.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, like your
0: hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music, pets, kids, etc.
1: you. Okay. Um, so family structure, I, um, I'm married, been married for four years. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I met him later in life and I I swear it was worth the wait. Um, just my maturity, his maturity. Um, and so he has a daughter, a 12 year old that we have 50% of the time, very regular schedule, you know, co-parent with the mom. He also has I think he just turned 22. He has a 22 year old son who has a child now. So I am a grandparent. Wow. (laughs) It's very weird. Um, And then I also have a son, um, but he's in heaven already. I had him last year and he was three months old. He had a, a severe medical condition that unfortunately was not compatible with life. Um, and so he passed away a little over a year ago but he's he's my son and he's he's in my spirit realm in heaven and um uh it's it's beautiful to have to be a mom even though he's not here and then we have two dogs german shepherd and black lab um uh, as far as interests i watch i I have a bad habit of binge-watching shows, so I can't start a new new show at like 11 at night because then I won't go to bed. But I've binge-watched *Shit's Creek, 13 Reasons Why, um, and then I always get into suspense and crime shows. Um, I love trying to figure out who the killer was in the show.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm a sucker for true crime.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I heard that on another podcast. I know some people are like, how do you watch that? And it's like, somehow it's a break from what we deal with.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, like, maybe if I worked in, like, criminal justice, I wouldn't be as willing to watch it. But there's just something about it that's so interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, The summary love being outside, swimming, dancing.
0: Well, I'm so sorry to hear about your son. That must have been very difficult, especially in the context of a pandemic. I mean, I can't imagine.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, He was diagnosed, it's called Noonan syndrome, and he was diagnosed 19 weeks in utero. Um, Before that, they did not think he would survive because of some symptoms he was having, and they really didn't think he would survive till birth, and he did. Um, so it was beautiful. Um, and then with it, it's a, there's a whole range of Noonan syndrome. Some people do fine, don't even know they have it. And some people don't, um, it's the major thing is heart defects and lymphatic system not working. And so unfortunately his little body, um, the lymphatic system was just didn't work. And so it's a, you know, it's a double-edged sword. So blessed to have had him when we were told we wouldn't. um, And then, you know, heartbreaking to lose him. So, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but it's a part of my journey now and kind of integrate it into becoming who I am because of it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I totally understand that. And I I thank you for sharing that because I'm sure there's other people out there that, uh, you know, need to hear that even therapists go through stuff like that too. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Um, so going back to like the topic here, our topic Mm -hmm. is understanding our survival strategies, right? Mm
1: -hmm. And it
0: sounds like you have some really good ones. So you're a good person to talk about with this way. Um, so what are survival strategies? Where, like, where do they come from? What does that look like? You know, kind of give us a definition.
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the reasons I I went ahead and mentioned my son, one is to honor him when you, you know, somebody asks about who your family is. But it's been a very interesting journey to have gone through that. And I had gone through some some major hardships and tragedies earlier in my life. And then going through this and there was this, there has been this kind of um, centeredness that I didn't have 20 years ago. Um, and so I started thinking about what, what's different about me this time around. And so started thinking about, um, I actually started writing a book, trying to kind of figure out these things. And I was and and one of them, the big thing that sticks out is survival strategies, which are the ways that we develop and, and most often as children, that we develop these patterns to get through life and particularly hardships. And there's for a long time and in many situations they serve us, but then there becomes a point when they don't serve us. And so like in my journey, kind of looking at, I've, all of a sudden I had my survival strategies staring at me. Um, I started, you know, getting really creative and I wanted to delve into this and that. Like, And my mom was like, hello, you're doing what you do. You're getting really busy. and trying to figure out, is busy going to work for me right now? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that I've seen for years and I've talked to and worked with clients through about survival strategies that... these these patterns that come into play and they get conditioned. And so often they get conditioned before the brain is developed. So there's not as much awareness as to why we do it. And then they come in and so often they judge themselves for it and they shame themselves for it. So an example is another uh, somebody the other day mentioned, God, why can't I just turn my brain off? I analyze everything all the time. I'm always looking for problems. Well, if we dig back to where that started, it was a survival strategy to be on alert status because the environment was unpredictable. And so, so, you know, I think it's important to look at survival strategies to see how they serve us because so often we judge them and shame them and say, I just don't want to be this way. And so if we look at how they serve us, and how maybe they're, they're backfiring is kind of what I call it, is we can find what works now in life, right. what is what best serves for the situation now.
0: So some other examples of like some survival strategies would include things like, uh, I know you mentioned being like overly busy is definitely a one, um, and like perfectionism and like a sense of fierce independence
1: um, yes. Yes.
0: What other What other strategies can you can you uh, give us that people might that commonly develop?
1: Yeah. Um. Actually, created a list. Um. When I was writing the chapter in the book. Um. People pleasing, and I know that that is um, and fawning, and I know that that is now kind of considered a, a trauma response, and and within the fight flight. Freeze, but, um, you know, the fawning and or the people pleasing is letting go of your own needs, um, acquiescing them, giving them over to the other person. And from a survival response, I can think of so many situations where that was what kept them safe. If they were to exert a boundary and a voice at the time, it might have brought harm. And so, but then it creates this pattern of an internal belief system of my needs don't matter. And so, you know, being able to grow into my needs do matter, but at the time it kept me safe. Um, So yeah, keeping busy overworking, um, you know, not slowing down to be able to, to not slowing down to feel emotions. Um. I can think of maybe, for example, somebody who was living as a teenager in a, um, a home with, with violence and they started their pattern of being busy all the time at school. High achiever, straight A's, clubs and everything, which brings a lot of good, you know, the right. resources. But then when it comes down to um, slowing down, they're very uncomfortable. And in high school, you know, in that example, they may not have had room to slow down, to actually feel that stuff. But then when we get older and all of our emotions are like, hi, I'm here, okay. <laughs> you have tried to ignore me, but I'm here. And they start coming out in other ways. It's recognizing um, that that survival strategy helped keep going. And yet we're now at a point that the emotions in the body are saying, hey, I need attention to. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of those types of strategies are also reinforced by our society by yes. things like capitalism, for
1: example. Uh-huh.
0: Um, and that winds up like reinforcing that, uh, that strategy over time until, you know, like you said, those emotions just like build up, those emotions have been bottled up for so long and then people start yeah. having problems.
1: Yeah. Um, that makes me think of one that really was highlighted when I lost my son or even when, when I was pregnant and then had him is this societal message of just stay positive. So that, mm-hmm. that toxic positivity. Right. And there is a time and place when looking for the positive does help. We don't want to be in a puddle every day but then this cultural reinforcement of just be positive don't even acknowledge the negative well where does where does the pain go that us as humans naturally are going to experience and so I hear in people well why can't I just appreciate what I have or why can't I just get over it and stop crying because there's that cultural societal message of stay positive. Um, so I, I talk about that a lot with clients, um, talking about those, those societal messages, you know, I think about in my grief process too, and, and people are well intended, but you know, just look at the bright side, look at how beautiful it is. Well, that's true. It is beautiful. And that's something I always, I imagine you also say with clients and there's intense
0: despair going on here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that reminds me, like when I approach clients in um, working with their thinking, right? Because I I do have, I do incorporate some cognitive behavioral stuff into my work Mm -hmm. with people. Um, You know, I always tell people, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I tell people like, I am not going to ask you to think in an overly positive manner.
1: Because Uh to
0: me, that's just as unbalanced as thinking in an overly negative manner. Um, So what we focus on instead is just balancing out that thinking as a whole.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm with you there. You do incorporate CBT as well. And I do the same thing. And we look at what's actually true. That and state right. what's true on both ends. I did have a good day and underneath, I'm really struggling. And so teaching them to just be, a, they're not teaching them, but teaching them, but also giving permission to, we can be real with that. And I, cause I don't really, I don't really believe in, I mean, some people affirmations work. But if we tell ourselves lies, I remember a therapist saying, you can't bullshit yourself. Right. Sorry, I, don't, I can say that on here. Oh, you,
0: can, you can totally <laughs> cuss on here. That's totally okay.
1: Um, but he's like, yeah, go ahead and tell yourself you're beautiful in the mirror, but you're bullshitting yourself. So what is true? I find beauty in my eyes or something, you know, and, and so, it, yeah, I'm similar to you as finding the the real stuff instead of what we think we should say, which is another, you know, cognitive distortion, these shoulds and all shoulds right. do are shame us.
0: Right. Stop shoulding yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, what you were talking about essentially reminds me of the, the phrase holding the dialectic, which is the ability to hold two opposing ideas as being true at the same time right so for example that somebody can be both good and bad that we can Mm -hmm. feel both good and bad
1: Uh Uh yeah yeah i have not heard of that that term before but yeah um i love that yeah to be able to hold good and bad and anything in between Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um tell us a little more about how trauma impacts our survival strategies? How how might, for example, somebody develop a survival strategy that's helpful and then hurtful later down the line? Um, can you give us some examples of what that might look like? And like also how our childhood influences those survival strategies? Because we all have them in some way, shape or form. We do, right? we do, yeah. Um, we all
1: have them. Um, because I mean, as nice as it would be, I don't know that there is a perfect family unit or family situation, whoever's included in that, uh, you know, caretaking situation that we're not perfect. So we're going to, we're going to respond to our parents in the, you know, in the circumstances, um, the best we can with limited knowledge. Um, when I think of trauma, And that is something that I was very blessed. The agency I was with in San Diego was trauma-informed way ahead, way before trauma-informed became a thing. And so I always, I mean, I just, I never take off the trauma lens. And so that lens I'm looking at what is your worldview? What is your view of yourself? And so to answer your question, what it makes me think of is if we go back to a child who's living, you know, has experienced trauma or living in a situation that's, you know, I think the biggest thing is not feeling safe, Mm -hmm. not having security, whether it's secure attachment or security in surroundings to know that what they need is important, that their needs are going to be met, whether it's basic, whether it's food, whether it's, I'm not going to be hit today. Like my actual physical being is not going to be um, injured today. And so in, in kind of thinking of examples, a big one is that hypervigilance that start is to, I mean, the body, you know, as you know, I, you know, I know you're very trauma informed. The body and the mind is designed to detect danger. And so hypervigilance of being able to detect surroundings. Um, I, I'm thinking of somebody who, and, and this has happened several times, but somebody recently where they constantly theorize what the other person is thinking. Right. And they don't have evidence for it. Right. Well, that right. stems from childhood of having somebody or many people in their life where it's so unpredictable that they had to be prepared for when this but they parent walks through the door, they have to know what mood are they going to be in. Right. Because if I don't know what mood I'm in, I don't know how to best protect myself. Um, they have to really um, pay attention to the intricacies, the nonverbals of, because those are indicators, what do I do to protect myself now? To prevent less harm, right? Um, one so example? If that's helpful or not?
0: Yeah one one example that I that specifically comes to mind in thinking about this are like people who grow up with uh, a parent who is an, an alcoholic, for example, mm-hmm. um, and they wind up taking this caretaker role um, even as a child of the parent who is an alcoholic um and for a lot of people what what that kind of may result in is like significant codependency right uh-huh. like yeah. like people pleasing uh yeah. like like still even upon being a grown-up and still caretaking for that parent in some yeah. ways and enmeshment in relationships um and really, people-pleasing is, is what I see the most. And it's, yeah. it's very difficult for people to put themselves first and to recognize that they don't have to please anybody and that, that mm-hmm. same danger isn't present anymore.
1: Yeah. yeah. But it's so subconscious, you know, and right. so in, in the body. But that's a great example. And I can think of the other day talking to somebody about um, they had to caretake. At that young age because otherwise their needs wouldn't be met
0: right
1: and, right. and the d- dynamic of the parent bringing that into that that dynamic but that there were times you know that it, I've, and i've heard it with a lot of clients i couldn't let my my mom break down because if she broke down she'd not feed me you know right. And so turning into being that parentified thing and then they grow up and like the com- one of the conversations the other day was, I am afraid that they can't handle it because they had evidence that somebody couldn't handle it. Um, and so they developed that, that trait, that, that pattern that I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, like you said, codependency, I'm going to go ahead and take care of it for them because if I don't, there's that internal fear of what will happen. And like you said, it's not unsafe now. So that other person might actually be more resourceful and, you know, compared to the parent 20, 30 years ago, but that internal wiring of I've got to take care of this Because I can't rely on somebody else to do it. That's kind of the deeper
0: part. Right. And, you know, I I read this thing earlier. It basically said, if you don't address your childhood traumas, your romantic relationships will. And I think that is so true. Um, And oftentimes the reason why a lot of people end up in therapy, you know, in their early 20s, for example. um, Mm -hmm. Because you know, my relationships just aren't working things, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know what's going on. Um, and I think that's a catalyst for a lot of people to get into therapy.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, something happened that something happened the other day um, with my husband. I'm not going to like divulge too much. I'm um, <laughs> He wouldn't appreciate that. Um, but it was this mirroring of my pattern of needing to control. Hmm. And, him he didn't understand it and you know and so thankfully we worked through it really well but all of a sudden I saw my pattern in front of me of because of the the things that I couldn't control in my life I have developed a pattern of well then I'm going to make sure everything I do is right like it's done the right way you know I'm not going to leave room for error because if there's error, that means maybe something bad could happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been aware of this. I've been very, you know, I've been doing therapy for all my life. Um, but it was like this pattern staring in front of me and we happened to be sitting um, at the the cemetery. Um, we were about to get out of the car and I said, because if I let go of control and I don't plan everything perfectly, to lose people so that was really good material for therapy <laughs> yeah you know yeah, totally um but you know then I joked with my mom and I was like mom I thought I was going to be done growing with these patterns you know like I thought <laughs> there was going to be a day that they just stop. but I've you know I've been able to find humor it's like oh there it is again yeah. my childhood trauma just coming in a different form um and if <laughs> thankfully in a more progressed you know uh form you know that I'm doing better and being able to recognize it but yeah if we don't recognize those they they show up in our lives again and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this conversation and why I do it with with clients is because if you move towards those patterns with compassion and curiosity rather than judgment and shame we can learn to work with them And that's where, you know, internal family systems comes in. Mm -hmm. I'm not trained in it, so I really don't want to proclaim that I am. But I know some of the basic concepts of befriending those parts, that part of you that shows up when it's scared, when it's feeling out of control, and getting to know that so that we can find strategies that work a little bit better.
0: Right. Yeah. So those, those parts of us um, are protective parts.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing them through the lens of protection, I think it can be really freeing.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree.
1: There's this, this horrible part of me that when I, you know, when this shows up, I'm a, I'm a broken and I'm horrible. And that's why if we can look at, wait, how has it tried to protect you? And how has it worked? Let's honor that it has worked. Then we're moving to be with it and work with it rather than against it.
0: So, how do we go about normalizing and validating those survival strategies, those protective parts of us? Like, what what's your approach to that with clients? Um, it's a
1: great question.
0: Because shame is so hard to, you know, yeah, so yeah. hard to overcome. It's huge.
1: Yeah. Um, a big approach, a, a common approach I use is taking them back to, so they, they verbalize, I have this behavior. And I take them back. I, I, I invite them to go back and remember a time or a situation when they were younger, when And to see it through that lens, and sometimes they it's easier for them to see it through a lens of another child. Like the other day, somebody was able to reflect they were watching a two year old. Oh, I see why this two year old did this, you know. Mm -hmm. So, taking them back to see their worldview from that point and say, What did you need to do to survive? Well, I had to stay quiet, I had to take my mom. I had to make mom dinner when she said, you know, I had to jump when she said jump or, you know, dad or whatever. And so helping them see, because we as, you know, as we evolve, not evolve, as we like grow each day, we don't see our world from the lens from back then. We see it from present time because we're so close to it, and so helping take them back and go, let's remember what it was like to be that little person Mm -hmm. at that time, and what you were going through on a daily basis, and so I'll ask them, what was life like? What were your challenges in the day? You know, things like that.
0: Yeah, and I think it it brings up some additional points of IFS, which I'm not trained in either, but um, the, like, the theory, I suppose, does inform my work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, those being able to, like, you know, the way I think about it is, you know, we have our traumas and we have various parts of ourselves that may even be, like, there's parts of us that show up in our adult life from our upbringing, right? Right. Um, yeah. and, and throughout our life. So, say somebody experienced significant trauma at the age of five or six years old. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, when something, um, like a, a trigger of sorts comes up um, that triggers trauma in some way for that person, they may respond from the place of that five year old part of themselves, right? Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah. That's what happened, I think, the other day. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband was all of a sudden, they, my body felt this intense fear. Um, and it was it was something we were swimming with, with my stepdaughter. And and my body felt a fear. And so I went into control mode. I went into, okay, how can I like control everything? And my husband's not understanding why do we need to have all of this in order? And so, yeah, I realized, whoa, this was from, this wasn't, I mean, this wasn't just about, you know, 30 minutes ago. This was like my, my body was going back to these other times that were really painful. And, and I was very fearful because there wasn't any control in this situation. Um, and so helping clients see that too. So that is something um, that I integrate um, is a lot of, I'm not somatic trained, from the somatic experiencing, but I am trained in trauma conscious yoga, the trauma conscious yoga um, from Nitita. And then um, some somatic stuff and then EMDR, I think really helps us um, kind of help the client become aware of what is that energy in the body? Where is it held? How old is it? You know, what does it remind you of? Because we're holding these layers of experiences.
0: And, you know, the reason why I think those, like, younger traumatized parts of ourselves come up are because that that part of us has some pretty significant unmet needs, right? Huh? Mm-hmm. Um So I don't know how you might go about this, but one thing I like to do, for example, is to have my clients connect with that younger self and, and um, one one strategy that I've used that's been really helpful for a lot of folks has been, you know, even writing a letter to that younger part of yourself mm-hmm. and giving that part of you, what, what is missing? Like, what did you need to hear yeah. at that age? What did you need from an adult, you know, and that's so healing for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, it really is. Um, uh, yeah. The letter, um, you know, and because there needs, got squashed. I mean, they weren't taught that they had even had the right to have the needs and they weren't taught what needs were. Um, EMDR, I think, lends well to when we're processing trauma um, and some of the resourcing um, techniques there is we can invite in that nurturing towards the younger self in that memory. And that's done very skillfully. Um, mm-hmm. but it's been very profound when all of a sudden, you know, people are, you know, the, the clients are going, oh my God, the hug that I just gave myself, you know, the love that I just gave myself or told myself it wasn't my fault um, can be really transformative. Mm-hmm. You know, without yeah it'd be the letters, it'd be the conversations, you know.
0: Yeah, totally. Um, and of course, you know, one letter, it doesn't just, Sure, everything. But 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 it gets the ball rolling,
1: right? Yeah. And recognizing there is that little person, that little part in you that, that lived a very real experience. Mm-hmm. A very valid, um I can't think of the word. I, I just lost it, but just very valid experience that needs to be honored. And the more the longer we don't honor those pains and those struggles that we went through, the more they decide to pop up later.
0: Right, like, and I think, yeah, and, and building that self compassion, I think, is is uh-huh. what it's all about. Because most most people aren't taught how to do that. You exactly. know, we're 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 taught to feel guilt when we're not as productive as we uh-huh. wanted to be, for example. Uh-huh. Um, which I think shows like the the patterns of um, the patterns of how we rather than be compassionate toward patterns of how we shame and criticize those parts of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That we're taught, you know, and we see it on you know, messages on magazine stands when you're standing in the grocery of, you know, basically the implied messages, you know, 10 ways to be happy, for example, well, therefore something's wrong with me because I can't be happy because clearly it's easy. If you can list it out in 10 10 techniques and I'm not happy, then something's wrong with me, you know?
0: (laughs) Right. And that's, that's right. That's like assuming that happiness is like a state of being, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, that was one of the questions I read. I don't believe in happiness as a consistent thing. I see it as a very temporary thing. And so I try to help I guess what has helped me. And then I see if it fits clients. I don't like to try to tell them what's going to fit for them, but what fits for me, I remember years, I I struggled with a lot of depression because of some of the things I went through. And I just kept thinking, why can't I be happy? And then I realized that's a temporary state. So I've shifted it to being peaceful. And I find this kind of baseline level of peace that even if there's a good day I enjoy it and if there's a bad day I still have some I don't even know if peace is the right word right now because I've definitely felt it with losing Ashton some sense of comfort that, that I'm still okay I'm still okay and I can go ahead and I can I can endure and hope and Resilient with the ebbs and flows, but if we hold ourselves to the standard that we must be happy all the time, I think it's setting us up uh, us up for disappointment.
0: Totally, totally agree with that. Um, so you've described a, a few different modalities that you draw upon. Um, what, like, just as a whole, what modalities modalities would you say you you work with or within? Um,
1: yeah, I mean one that, one that's a staple. Is the cognitive behavior therapy recognizing our thoughts and finding like um, practical ways we can start listening to how we talk to ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I should say, in my uh, as being a client and seeing when they fit well. And my first chunk was um, hearing how I talk to myself and hearing the. The evidence that i would pull that actually didn't exist like i don't know everybody hates me well does that match the evidence right that five friends that called and checked on you yesterday or something you know um and then i come from an attachment lens and i'm um, looking at secure attachment and, um whether we had it in childhood or don't and then how we build it in our our present day relationships and with ourselves that secure attachment with ourselves Um, I'm very, uh, family systems focused as well. Um, and so attachment, I think family systems theory are kind of my, my underlying lens of how I see growth and change. And then the interventions are going to be more of the CBT, EMDR, um, the somatic, interventions you know with the trauma conscious yoga Mm -hmm. that's very cool yeah Um, i try to i use my intuition i use my knowledge but i use my intuition too to see kind of where where maybe the the focus is best for the client at the time Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. well before we move on to the next like portion of questions was there anything else that you wanted to say about our survival strategies that we didn't talk about or I didn't ask about?
1: No, I think we talked about it, but just maybe kind of to repeat it is I encourage people to get to know, have that compassion, get to know those parts and see them through that lens of wanting to protect and, you know, and that that's underneath is that's what our body's trying to do is always trying to protect us. I mean, that's not something we chose. The, bo- the brain's literally saying, how do I protect myself? <laughs> um, and so getting to know that and spending time to see how it's really had good intentions. Those parts have had really good intentions. Um, and that when they work too, we want to look at when they have worked. Um, And then look and see, does that meet what I need right now? Do I need that same protection right now? Or do I actually have other resources within me that can fill this underlying emotion or desire a little better, that the strategy is a little better?
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Well, I had a lot of fun talking about that with you. But uh, we we, we will go on to the next portion. so this this section focuses more on on you as a, a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples?
1: Yeah, um, no, my mind just thought of a couple different things. So, okay, I'm going with my my body telling me this right now is I really want to stay up front. I I present as white and I've lived from a privileged space of that whiteness. And so no matter what I, I kind of mention as far as my experiences that I do always keep my privilege at the forefront of my mind and, and recognize it to honor it and see how that, that may create a gap of me understanding where somebody else has come from. Um, at the same time, I, you know, because like, as I mentioned, you know, my dad being Hispanic um, and starting to notice how cultural differences kind of started, you know, intersect with things and, and socioeconomic, he who's he, um, definitely struggled socioeconomically, is that I started learning about diversity. I had been middle school, I started trying to read books and things like that. And so, from an educational lens, I've um, I actually chose San Diego State University for my grad school program because that was that is like their top value, is to see everything from a cultural lens, um, and teach us. It was actually a three year program instead of two years, where there's a lot of hands on, like nitty gritty. Let's look at all of our racial biases, you know, all of any biases and. And I chose that program because it aligned with my values to always be able to serve in the best way I can with, with my capacity as my lit from my lived experience. And then as far as training, you know, so I had the grad school. And then as far as training, um, I've done uh, three 40-hour curriculums on cultural responsiveness. And um, one of them was right before I left San Diego, and that focused on um, LGBTQ youth. Others focused on kind of more broadly the different cultural um, categories. And then as far as um, professional experience, I actually worked in San Diego. My office, I am bilingual, and so my office and my clientele was half a half a mile from the border. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so 14 of my years was working with... Um, Mexican- American youth and families and I say that I had done one of my grad school research projects was how do they they identify themselves and so using that word that that was the common word was Mexican- American having those those two cultural components. Um, I feel so blessed that um, oh that just made me think of something else <laughs> that's important to say. I feel blessed that that is part of my my real life experience. My my biological father's family, Um, my grandparents are are Spanish speakers, but they didn't teach their children. So that's why I went back to, I wanted to get back to my own heritage and learn Spanish. Um, But, um, so it's kind of, I don't want to claim that that's how I was raised, but it is kind of part of my, who I am of getting to that cultural connection of um, the Hispanic heritage. And then I've just, I've continued, that's why I take Medicaid, um, is to be able to serve under underprivileged populations, um, marginalized populations as, you know, that is kind of the, you know, the access to resources that they have. Um, right. And then as far as LGBTQ and, and trans, I was thinking about this. My first trans client in private practice they called and they said, I'm trans. And I said, I wanna be honest, I, am, I don't specialize in this. I am absolutely open to it, but I don't specialize. And my client said, awesome, that's what I want. <laughs> um, they said, you know, that um, they're, from their past experiences, because they were like, I feel really solid in my, my gender identity and I wanna work on my trauma. And so it's been kind of more organic. I've been trained from this academic lens, but now I have several um, trans clients on my caseload, but I really don't want to claim that that's my specialty. But I really do see, um, and I'm open to anybody because I want to just meet them where their experience is at. Uh-huh. Um, but also recognize my limitations and, and have that upfront conversation what are you wanting from a therapist in regards to this and and be upfront whether or not i have that experience
0: right right right
1: okay what could a that new a client long, long-winded answer huh <laughs> no i think that was a
0: good answer i think it, it sums up your experience and it sounds like you have uh, a lot of a variety of different experiences so i'm, I'm glad to hear that um what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about on an ongoing basis? You know, when people are looking for a therapist, you know, they get nervous um, and they don't know what to expect. So what would, they, what would they expect from you in the first and ongoing sessions?
1: So I know people do this differently, but I do pre-consultation calls, um, 20, 30 minutes. I believe very strongly, and I guess maybe this came from the community. Mental health is to establish that rapport from the get-go and create safety for them to come in, and create um, choice of getting a feel of, am I the right fit for them? Are they the right fit for me? And so the rapport is established on the phone, um, and I explain. I I always ask, what's your history with therapy? You know, and so, oh yeah, you know, I've been there before. Here's what I like, or somebody's like. I have never been, I don't know what to expect. Um, So I tried to explain the therapeutic process and explain my approach, which is very similar to kind of how our conversation is. I'm very, I'm open, I'm authentic. I tell clients that first session or on the phone that absolutely no matter what, I want them to feel comfortable with their therapist and that it's okay if they don't feel that it's a good fit know how firsthand if the relationship's not there, it doesn't matter how magnificent the therapist is trained and some mod, you know, some model. Um, and so I really in my first session I'm gonna ask questions, you know, I'll have a little bit of information from the consultation, but I'm gonna ask questions. Um, I'm not very formal, um, as far as you know, I don't follow like a script or anything, but um, letting them show up and tell me what they want to tell me about who they are and i guess just i really try to let them know that this is their space like this is their time they don't have to take care of me they don't have to take care of anybody else and i'm going to meet their wh- where meet them where they're at and then i also like it to really be collaborative and i explain you know that my approach is they are you know for lack of a better term expert in their own lives I have a set of tools that could enhance the situation but it doesn't mean they're going to be the right tools and that they will get voice and choice in the process but then I'm also going to be honest so I you know I I let them know I use humor sometimes actually a lot probably um and then and then also am assertive and direct with things.
0: That's awesome. I'm, I'm very direct myself. All my clients know that. and um, They say that's why they come to me. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of people appreciate that, that directness mm-hmm. rather than somebody who is more passive in, in session. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I tell them, I said, I will always be honest with you. Um, you will never have to guess what I'm right. thinking. I, I, what I promise to you is I'm going to show up honestly and authentically. And if you have a question, I'm going to be honest with it because I don't want the responsibility on them to play out another relationship where they're having to be on guard for that.
0: Exactly. And, exactly. Yeah. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you?
1: I think kind of it's that that other side. Um, they feel safe. They feel seen. They they we build a trust that I am I'm looking out for their best interest and I'm going to be honest. It's like it's trying to create that secure attachment model. You know, model that of it's safe to mess up with me, you know, that's kind of a broad term. I don't have the specifics, but I'm still going to care. I'm going to be honest. If I, you know, if I see, whoa, that, you know, that's where I use my humor. Like, well, that was an interesting strategy. You know, how'd Mm -hmm. that work out for you, you know? Um, And some have some gentleness, but that my, my commitment to them and my care for them is not going to change based on the choices they make because, and then I, when I normalize things, like we don't always make the best choices, even if maybe in our head, we know it's not a great choice. And so meeting them where they're really at. And I, I, you know, I've, I've got clients um, since I've been in private practice, I've, I've got some clients that have been there from the beginning, you know, going on three, three and a half years with some breaks, yeah. you know, it's not like I just keep them there forever for my right. benefit. Um, but that the relationship is is solid and, and consistent and reliable.
0: Cool. Okay. Are you a therapist who will, it sounds like you'll laugh, um, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients?
1: I am. I am. Um, I don't cry as much anymore. Um, and that's not because I'm afraid to let it. I just don't. Things don't get to me as much, maybe, but I believe in being authentic. And I I guess what I think is if I sit there and I tear up.
0: I've gotten all sorts of the answers for this.
1: Yeah, no, and I and I'm not even looking for the right answer. I'm kind of trying to visualize is I use my words, I I try to balance, like I let them know, wow, that's really touching, and I'm here with you. And but I also try to balance like It's not about me. Like, you don't have to take care of me, you know? Right, right, right. Right. Um, And But there, yeah, there are moments that, and I'm okay with it. I just, you know, I believe, you know, I think there are good boundaries to have in therapy, but I think that there's so much healing that can be happened in the moment of rawness. Right. Um,
0: To me, that's my favorite part of therapy.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm thinking. That's why maybe it's hard to describe because it's this energy in that moment. Right. And I, if I were to sit there and be stoic, I think we're missing out on, on humanness and connection. Well, connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I also, I, that's why I go to therapy is to make sure that it's not about me. Right. And then we create that dynamic of taking care of me. So as, a, as an example, I'm not ready to take a client that has lost a child mm-hmm. I just because there's I'm still processing so much and that's right. not fair to a client and if I cried you know if they come in and tell me this story I'm gonna be crying for me as well that's mm-hmm. not fair to them you know right but um, so just knowing kind of our own stuff but absolutely I I, I believe in the power of human connection and. Um, Going to be there to, to live with that with the clients. Cool.
0: How do you define holding space for someone? This is probably my favorite question.
1: Yeah. Um
0: because it like sums up everything we do, like a lot, at least the basis of what we should be doing is holding yeah. space, right? And it's yeah. just this nebulous kind of concept. But uh, I love that everybody, we we say different things, but we all mean the same thing, too. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. So when I was thinking about this, because I think it is a great question, um, I think the first thing, holding space is presence, like being fully present and and letting them know I am here to... I don't want to use that term again, but I'm here to hold space for whatever you want right now. Letting them know that they are important and that they're not going to be judged, Um, that it is their time. I mean, think of how often we are programmed that, oh, I shouldn't take up space. There's not time for it. Somebody can't handle it. Um, I've heard lots of times, people talking about, whether it's their trauma or their loss. Well, I don't tell people because they can't handle it. It's too much. And so as a therapist, you know, doing self-care on our end so that we can be, when that person comes into our session video in the room, we are, it is their time. And that we have the capacity to hear and hold whatever they bring up.
0: Yeah. Love it. Well said. What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor?
1: Um, when I was thinking about, <laughs> honestly, it slow down the process. Slow it down. You know, it is nerve wracking to be a therapist when you're new. There's like this, <laughs> I need, there's this expectation. I should know how to handle this. And yet, or you know like a computer if you're working on a computer you only have a finite number of problems with the computer you know it's the outlet it's the keyboard humans like there's no end and so there's this this kind of there can be this anxiety when we start as to oh my gosh can I handle it what if they say this am I saying the right thing and the advice was slow it down where you're not feeling like you have to fix it, but you're getting to those deeper levels. Um, Be able to be okay with silence, slowing it down where somebody's really going inside because they're already used to, we're all already used to just kind of being in our cognitive space and, Mm -hmm. and things that, you know, kind of like reading like a story, but slowing it down to help them go, how does this really feel inside as an example? So oh, that's, that's been something that I've, I've always thought of. And then I teach my interns, my associates, you know, um, yeah. there's, there's, it's okay to slow it down. That's where the humanity is and the vulnerability. Right.
0: What have you personally learned about yourself and, or the world through your practice?
1: A million things. Um, uh I consider, so there was something I had to write a bio for myself. And honestly, I consider my life experience one of my biggest teachers. And part of that experience is being a therapist. Um, and what I've learned about myself and the world, I think we just want to live our best selves. I think there's, there's this deeper part that we want to be loved and we want to love others, you know, and, and we develop these patterns outside of ourselves that kind of get disconnected and we're just trying our best. Um, you know, I think of working with parents, you know, and, and so parents come in and they're, you know, maybe harping on something their kid does. What's really happening is they're, they're they want to protect their kid or their shame around what they've done. And so getting deeper, not just for clients, but even for me, what's the shame around this? What are we carrying around? And so learning that there's just this innocence underneath that's just trying to navigate the world and be the best we can be. Um, and so having that compassion for myself as well, and then other people, um, I've learned that, yeah, as I mentioned before, our shit comes out in new ways. Um, hopefully, <laughs> each time it does, you yeah. know? <laughs> but it's you know um, that we're just you know we're a continuous work in progress. And um, I work with a lot of twenty somethings. I love love working with that age. And there's so much societal messages that when I reach this, I'm going to have arrived.
0: Or that I should reach this by this time, even. Yeah,
1: yeah, those timelines, man. You know, and I remember having them, but it's just so, so prominent. And well, because I'm about to turn 30 and I don't have this and I don't have mm-hmm. that. Where did we get these messages? And to realize, wow, even when we get to that point, there's still gonna be more to learn and experience and um the best we can do is. Oh, along with the ride with gentleness and and compassion for ourselves for other people.
0: Totally agreed. Totally agreed. So after a long hard day at work in session, what do you do to take care of yourself?
1: Um the first thing I learned years ago especially in case management and um, is to set boundaries, not that I've been great about it, but I'm, I'm very good about it now, but set boundaries around work schedule. Um, so I absolutely do not schedule things on the weekends. Um, I also have a separate work phone, and I put that away. Um, uh, so that, you know, whether it's Google Voice or something coming in that if somebody texts at 11 at night, I don't, like, I just turn it off, knowing I have, I will have more capacity to be present for somebody. But if I spread it over 24, seven, I've got less capacity. Right. Um, I have, um, it's been really interesting in the last year. Um, you know, i put in a lot of, sorry, I just jumped around. I've put in a lot of coping skills, dancing, going for hikes, things like that. But the thing I've been working on in the last year and, and committed myself to was just listening to my body. Um, is my body telling me I'm tired right now? And then honoring that. Um, am I hungry right now? Okay, you know, um, trying to eat or whatever, that that's been a way that has been really good to take care of myself. Um, and then um, I'm a, I'm an introvert. Um, so I need a lot of alone time. Um, and especially like spending energy all day, you know, we're, we're in a job that we are literally in an energy force every, every appointment. And so, like I said, you know, combining that with listening to my body that, um, I will set aside aside alone time. And thankfully, you know, my family is really understanding of it and whatnot, but if I don't recharge my battery, I'm, I'm like worthless a couple days later so
0: right yeah okay well this next question is a, a little vulnerable what is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician
1: um i am a person who doesn't remember embarrassing moments except for one i remember one in college that was pretty funny um I fell through like the stadium seating, you know, like the, you know, the seats go up. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I tried to climb over and I fell through it instead of, oh, no. <laughs> that was pretty funny because the whole classroom turned at me, but you know, I can't think of embarrassing things with clients because embarrassing things, honestly, they just roll off me because I think they're funny. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, in high school I would get embarrassed for things, but I'm not thinking of something specific. I do know a couple weeks ago, this was embarrassing, but not in a funny way. Um, First appointment I was supposed to have in the office, um, scheduled it, was supposed to meet somebody in the office, and I completely forgot. So they're like, hi, I'm here. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm still at home because she's <laughs> transitioning. Like, I completely forgot. That's embarrassing to me, but thankfully there's a report and, you know, um, they understood my humanness and my mistake too. Right. But, you know, as far as other kind of funny things, I don't know. I'll get back to you one day when like a memory pops up and it's like, oh my gosh, that was mortifying, you know?
0: <laughs> that sounds good. Um, and the next question, you, you've essentially already answered, but I'm going to ask anyway. Um, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy?
1: Yeah, I started, um, going to therapy in college. I had, um, I had gotten very depressed. I had unfortunately lost my father to my biological father, um, not my adoptive father, um, to suicide. And that just catapulted me into PTSD and depression. And so that's when I started going to therapy Um, And then I've been in therapy, so that was at age 20 that I started. Um, So I've been in therapy 22 years on and off. There's been times I've taken a break or um, like when I moved to Texas, I definitely had a break. But um, I've actually seen three different therapists since losing Ashton um, because there's different needs that came up. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm with somebody that's very somatic focused, figuring out where I'm, I'm holding kind of the trauma of all that. Um, I just, I don't, I can't see myself ever not going to therapy because I like to understand how I operate. And I very much believe that if I'm going to ask a client to do something, I should be doing it myself. Right. giving it a try um it's kind of like i think of i remember some, a therapist in training saying oh i don't need therapy and i thought well that's like trying to sell somebody like the world's best vacuum but you refuse to use that vacuum you use a different right. vacuum it just doesn't compute to me right. um so i just and, and about finding the right one though i'm not going to go to therapy just to be in therapy it's just finding what do i need at this time and what modality would probably help me and then i learned like i mean i imagine you know then you really learn the model from a different lens right and then can you use it or not yeah. use it if you decide it's not a good model but
0: yeah well i mean i just think it's so important for therapists period to be in therapy you know maybe it doesn't have to be on a regular basis but even just like checking in every once in a while with a therapist mm-hmm. just to make sure we're on the right track and our um mm-hmm. our things aren't coming up in session you know i think yeah. that's it's important just for that alone uh, nevertheless yeah. us as a whole human
1: yeah and we deserve our time too we deserve right. our person you know that's like completely it's not like we can go talk to our family members you know about these situations that come up because that breaks confidentiality but being able to honor that hey we deserve somebody to hold space for us as well we're not we're not the ones that have you know it's we don't have to be the ones that are always giving that we get we get to receive as well
0: totally agree with that 110 percent um well amanda is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists
1: to know about you Let's see. I think we've heard a lot. <laughs> I guess anybody is that I'm welcome. I'm, I'm I invite that if you have a question, give me a call. Um, I am limited on availability right now. Um, you know, so I don't want to you know say that I have all these openings, but. Um, you know, for the right, especially like I want to be able to provide services to um, maybe do some EMDR intensives, which are the ones that are, you know, just kind of we're digging even more into the targets. Um, so maybe if somebody has a therapist, they're already working on, on the everyday stuff and the MD- EMDR would be an enhancement. That is an option. Um, but yeah, if, if anybody has questions, whether it's a client or a therapist, I'd be more than happy to... Um, have a dialogue. Um, I do have an opening for one or two more associates to do supervision. Um, I do like to have that part of my schedule. Um, And then I do, I am expanding into coaching. It's a separate business, um, but I am developing a group coaching program um, that somebody could reach out to me for if they wanted. And that is going to be focused on um, self-esteem not not from healing trauma, but living from a place of loving yourself even more fully. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where the actions align with honoring yourself and loving yourself. Um, and then I am writing a book. It's called Embody Your Worth. The goal is to have it done by the end of the year. We'll see how that goes um because we're in the middle we're going to be moving soon so i'm getting behind um but i definitely love helping people build that self-worth um that is definitely the the niche that i focus on which then entails there's some trauma to go through and stuff
0: right 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 well thank you so much for being on the show amanda it was a real pleasure
1: you're welcome thank you for having me and great to talk to you and get to know you you know somewhat through this finally i've seen your i've seen your post and 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 your verbalization of who you are in the community and um it's really great to finally get to have a connection with you same here next question
0: Thank you for listening to the Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Next Quest Podcast will be on a break for the next month, but we'll return on August 1st, when an episode featuring Cindy Cullen, licensed clinical social worker supervisor and certified mental health integrative medicine provider, we'll be talking about her practice in an area of specialty, integrative psychotherapy. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Demet Resources, Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Jandimit Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Jandimit Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimit.com, that is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com, or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash NextQuest Podcast. Or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www dot next dot com slash about next quest podcast you can also support the podcast by liking our facebook page until next question this is noah garcia signing off